0: Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Corrin, here hosting another episode of MedEvidence, where we discuss the truth behind the data. And... Um, it's been a pleasure. We've had uh, multiple sessions and a great conversation so far. But this is Dr. Sunil Joshi, who is an allergy immunologist and also very involved in organized medicine. Uh, thank you for your service as past president My of the pleasure. Duval County Medical Society and Foundation. Uh, we, we do appreciate that on behalf of all physicians. And uh, you know, community leader and somebody that's interested in clinical research, so, so a soulmate yeah. in, in that area. And we've been having really a fabulous discussion about allergy and immunology, new drugs, The evil eosinophil and how we calm that evil eosinophil. Right. And uh, also alluded to some of the clinical research that we're doing. But we actually left off our last session talking about how eosinophils can have effects in different organ systems. And you share with us a great case. I love this case of somebody that you were treating for eosinophilic asthma you also got tremendous benefits from her eosinophilic esophagitis.
1: That's right. What, that's a, cool, right. Co- what a cool case. Yeah, and, and there's so many more like that too, but that one st- stands out because mm-hmm. I wasn't even sure if she was the first patient I was even using one of these agents on, and, right. it, and it worked in multiple
0: areas. Yeah, so more broadly, this gets the idea of the immune system and its impact on different diseases that we don't necessarily consider immune diseases, mm-hmm. but maybe are. So we were just talking about diabetes. So, um, you know, type 1 diabetes is probably autoimmune-based. Oh,
1: it is absolutely autoimmune-based. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and um, uh, what's interesting is that there's some theories that get into your hygiene theory that you're talking Mm -hmm. about that suggest that people that are more exposed to pathogens and viruses, sort of southern people, Mm -hmm. are less likely to have type 2, excuse me, type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. than people who grew up in the north. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to comment on Yeah, that. I
1: mean, that's a, that's the perfect example. And mm-hmm. so, you know, as we talk about a hygiene hypothesis, some autoimmune diseases are actually driven by the part of the um, immune system that fights off viruses and bacteria, but type one diabetes is actually not. It's mm-hmm. actually down that same path, similar to, to allergies with an IgG4 type of a process. And so, yeah, so it makes perfect sense. People who are exposed to more viruses, that warmer climate, you may even have some parasitic infections in the mountain regions versus folks who are not as, as exposed in the colder regions, as, at least traditionally, You know, before climate change kinda took, took shape, um, you would see that difference in overall disease processes, including in an autoimmune disease such as um, type one diabetes. Yeah,
0: and in my area of cardiology, there's a lot of talk about inflammatory cells and how they affect atherosclerosis. And it's believed at this point in the atherosclerosis hypothesis that macrophages in particular but other inflammatory cells are very, very important in terms of the progression of coronary artery disease and other forms of atherosclerosis. Oh,
1: absolutely, and it makes sense too, and that's why I think, you know, like in cardiology, you guys now have markers of inflammation and that help you determine somebody's risk of heart disease, right, the CRP and things of yeah, that. Yeah. And so, again, it all comes back down to
0: inflammation in the immune system. Yeah, and we know, for example, that folks that have rheumatoid arthritis have higher risk for cardiovascular disease and other things where, your immune system and your, you know, inflammatory system are revved up over extended periods of time. Yeah, the
1: overdrive of immune system. We don't even know half of what it probably is doing to our body. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, we're just really in the infancy of this. And the other thing you mentioned in the past in the previous segment that I thought was fascinating is that we actually have a fair number of drugs already out there that target the eosinophil mm-hmm. and other elements of the whole inflammatory cascade. Of course, but again, getting to the eosinophil that will tame that eosinophil. And um, yet, I'm very curious with a lot of these new drugs, they're very expensive. And I'm sure there's some sort of prior authorization process. So tell me how you, one, decide to go from sort of standard antihistamine steroids to these more sophisticated therapies, number one, and then a little bit of the process?
1: Okay, great question too. So when the standard therapies have been working for 30 or 40 years, why do we jump to biologics? And we don't jump to biologics. I mean, so if a patient is doing well with a standard of care that we would typically do for an asthmatic and they're able to have a good quality of life, they're not having exacerbations two, two or more times a year, or they're not needing systemic steroids, there'd be no reason to jump to a biologic. It's when they're not doing well with that standard of care and continuing to fail, that we start thinking about biologics and based on certain biomarkers, certain biologics would be more likely to be the ones that we would go after, whether that's the eosinophil count, whether that's something that we measure called exhaled nitric oxide in a breathing test or even an uh, allergy antibody level, kind of helps us decide on what biologic agent we choose. There is definitely a prior off to all of this. So mm-hmm. our office, we have a full-time employee that her yeah. only job is to try to get these medications approved for these patients. And the reason for that is, and you can't blame the insurance company, mm-hmm. these medications are in the three to $4,000 a month range, maybe oh. even higher than that uh, mm-hmm. for some of the newer agents. And so it's very, very expensive. And so they want to have proof as to why the patient needs the drug. We have to provide that proof to them. And then mm-hmm. they approve it, mm-hmm. that just because the insurance company approves it doesn't mean the patient doesn't have to pay for it sure. right so the patient may have a high uh, copay they may have a high coinsurance or they might be a, 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 a medicare patient who's now in their donut hole mm-hmm. and so suddenly patients even with a 20% coinsurance are paying $800 a month for this drug wow. um, and it becomes cost prohibitive and so so then we have to go through all of, all of the processes to see if we can um, have them qualify for some Rebates from the drug company, etc., to make it more more cost effective for
0: them. Yeah, so it, it's become complicated to get these new, sophisticated, wonderful drugs. By the way, they 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 do things that we couldn't even imagine a few right. years ago, but they are very costly. And there's been a lot of research and development, of course, that has to be recaptured by the companies that develop them. And, um, you know, it's it's tough on some patients. It is. And it's tough on us as providers,
1: too, mm. because we know we've got this potential treatment option. And it takes us time, number one, to have that discussion with the patient to the point where they're now ready to do a biologic. Mm. So it takes a while to, to convince them they need to take that step. But then after that, the cost comes in, and then that, you know, it's another another battle we have to fight, unfortunately.
0: Right, right. So uh, that gets into actually one of the rationales for participating in clinical research. So there's a lot of reasons why people like clinical trials. Um, One of my favorite things to quote is if you ask the random person on the street whether or not they'd be interested in a clinical trial, 40% say yes both in in north america and in europe hmm. uh, that's that's the general sense of being supportive of clinical trials if they've had no no exposure mm-hmm. but once they've been exposed if you've been in a clinical trial and you ask the patient would you do another one the positive rate is 97 to 99 percent. wow so there's something about the process that people really enjoy that Makes them feel fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. And so part of that could be um, getting access to medicines that they wouldn't have access to other otherwise, either because they're not exactly available for them, they don't quote meet the indication for that medicine, or they can't afford it. And so um, I'm sure you've had that experience in in, in the clinical research oh, realm.
1: Oh, absolutely. And so I think there are multiple factors. I mean, I I think once. I definitely. I thought that it would be lower than forty percent. To be honest with you, you know when, when I when I talk to patients about Europeans, trials. Are actually
0: a little bit lower than uh, Americans. Okay, so very mean, interesting. Americans have to be a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, that's good. <laughs>
1: that's good. Um, and so when they actually enroll into a trial, I think they realize how easy it is. Yeah. Number one, they just show up. Number two, in, in a lot of cases, just because in most of these trials they're actually interacting with a nurse, a healthcare provider, uh, professional, um, about health in general, they focus on their own health a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so this placebo effect of these trials is pretty high, just by, by the fact that they are sure. interacting with someone who's now talking to them about their health and they don't have to pay for it, right. okay? And so not having to pay for a drug that could cost up to $3,000 a month also would make me want to be part of that clinical yeah. trial network as well. Absolutely. And so, and then there's that percentage of patients who want to contribute to science, of course, um, on top of that. But if you could do all of that and get that benefit and right. feel better at the end of the day,
0: of course, that would yeah. be a great way to Legacy do it. Legacy is a big issue also. Uh, a lot of people do it because they want their kids to not have to deal with the same thing. There's probably some genetic components to some of the things that you deal with.
1: Yes, there are. And and so if, if patients can help us understand what treatments help, what diagnostic factors can make a difference, then it does help other people coming behind them, in particular, their offspring.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about the clinical trial that's going on here in Northeast Florida using an oral agent. To uh, knock off those evil eosinophils. Tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah,
1: so you know we here we been talking about agents to, to treat um, eosinophils that are injection therapies and. Mm. Um, but, you know, most patients would want something simple, something oral. And well, there's this drug that has been studied for ALS, amniotropic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, mm-hmm. a horrible disease where there's so much research looking for ways to prevent progression of that disease. Well, there was a drug that was out there looking at it and, and they were looked at. Unfortunately, it didn't work for ALS, okay? Mm-hmm. But what they noticed as they were checking blood on these folks is their eosinophil accounts were dropping, okay? Without very many other side effects of note, the eosinophil count Are dropping. Mm -hmm. And so here we have disease processes where we're targeting eosinophils with injection therapies. And now there's this potential drug that decreases eosinophils too. So the question is, if we are able to decrease the eosinophils in the bloodstream, will that help them with their asthma? just like it's helping them with these other biologic agents. Interesting. But if it's an oral agent, it certainly would be more convenient for the patient, something they could do at home with a relatively low side effect profile. Wouldn't that be amazing? And so here, yeah. one study led to another that might help us with another debilitating disease.
0: That's interesting. So when it was first being proposed as a treatment for a neurological disease, was it through the eosinophilic mechanism?
1: No, I think it was through a mechanism to reduce a certain protein that's involved with ALS. Interesting. And the eosinophil somehow got implicated as something that was dropping as yeah. a result of this drug. And so we don't 100% understand the mechanism of how this drug reduces eosinophilia like we do with these other agents. We're talking about IL-5, et cetera. We just know that it does. Interesting. And so we'll see what the outcomes are.
0: Yeah, so that's one of my favorite parts of clinical research is when you discover something you had no idea that you would discover. Right. So you, you're look you're going down one road, and if you keep your eyes open, you'll find something that may help people in another area. Well, that's what makes research fascinating. Yeah. So one of you, know, one of the classic examples of that is Viagra, of course. Mm. Yes. So Viagra, it was developed as a treatment for coronary artery disease. And with the concept that it was a phosphodiesterase inhibitor and it helped dilate arteries and all this sort of thing. And it didn't work very well for angina. In fact, it didn't, it didn't work for angina. But they couldn't get the drug back. They couldn't get the study <laughs> drug back from the men that were in the trial. And they're trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and they found out their, their sexual function got better. And so it went from... a a possible cardiac drug to a drug for erectile dysfunction. Amazing. So uh, you never know how things will twist and turn. That's right. And And then you you got to go down that road. If if it can help people, then you go down that road,
1: it's all about quality of life. And in this case, it may be about disease progression too.
0: Yeah. Well, Sunil, I've learned so much from you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for being a guest on MedEvidence. And it's fascinating. We'll definitely have you back on another topic. And um, thank you for sharing your wisdom with with our audience.
1: My pleasure. I love talking about allergic diseases. Like I said, I could talk about this for two or three days straight.
0: Absolutely. Well, (laughs) that will be our marathon session. Stay tuned. (laughs) Thanks for joining the MedEvidence podcast. To learn more, head over to MedEvidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.